This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Chuck Palahniuk, author of Consider This, Moments in My Writing Life After Which Everything Was Different. One of my friends was dying of cancer, and uh, he gave me a big prescription bottle of OxyContin. I think it is the hillbilly heroin stuff. And I took one, and suddenly I could tell these stories that up to that point had been so close and so painful that I could never tell them, much less write them down. We'll be back with Chuck Polinick in a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Chuck Palahniuk, who writes in many forms, including novels, novellas, graphic novels, short stories, and even coloring books. He also writes nonfiction and essays and began his career as a journalist. He is best known for his novel Fight Club, which was adapted into a film which is now a cult classic. Some of his other titles include Choke, Lullaby, Stranger Than Fiction, and the short story Guts. Chuck Palahniuk is known for his interest in the fringes, the absurd, the darkly humorous, and the violent. 
His latest work is a book on craft called Consider This, Moments in My Writing Life After Which Everything Was Different. The book is a blending of memoir, which features elements of his life on book tour, his experiences in workshop, and moments with his mentors, alongside craft tips and tangible writing advice. We began the discussion with Chuck Palahniuk sharing why the time was right to write a craft book, something he'd wanted to do for a long time, but was never quite ready to do. You know, this is going to sound really irresponsible for me to say this, but I want to be really honest. Um, It came at a time when all my friends were wrapped up in caring for their elderly parents. I found myself very alone for a couple months. And one of my friends was dying of cancer, and uh, he gave me a big prescription bottle of OxyContin. I think it is the hillbilly heroin stuff. And I took one, and suddenly I could tell these stories that up to that point had been so close and so painful that I could never tell them, much less write them down. And it's only with that narcotic that I was able to tell the stories that I needed to tell for this book. And as soon as the bottle was empty, the book was done. And uh, I've never gone back. Um, I don't need to go back. But that's how the book got written. I mean, you know, Jack Kerouac did a lot of Benzedrine when he did On the Road. Um, So, you know, and uh, Coleridge, uh, the uh, opium poem, uh, you know, there is, there's a long history of books being written under the influence. You don't have any shame about it. I do. I do have shame about it. I don't want to promote that kind of reckless behavior because too many people come to me and they tell me, my son, my brother, my girlfriend really loved your work and they're dead. And they're dead because of an overdose. And I hear so much of that, that I do not want to promote that kind of behavior. But you you must have a very lucky constitution in that you seem like you're an indulger, but you can stay away from the addictive behavior. You know, and I think part of it is because I get very bored of any specific drug very quickly. Uh, all through college, I might you know experiment with something, but I could very quickly see it was going to be the same effect uh, and it was going to be diminishing rewards every time. So it was very easy to put something down and walk away. Uh, And really nothing gets me as high as writing does. So it was very easy to give up any drug if I felt that it would hurt my writing. And some people listening to who might not have read Consider This yet might think, well, why, why do you need to maybe numb the pain when you're writing about writing? And so we should say that while you are giving a lot of practical advice, in between our stories from your own life about people that have impacted you. Um, Many of them are not with us anymore, but can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what you were sort of trying to overcome to be able to write this? You know, the book was about repaying this enormous debt to all the people who had contributed skills and really useful advice to me that had basically given me a career as a writer. And so many of those people are either completely infirmed now or uh, dead. So many people who endorsed my work and promoted it 
uh, who were very big names at the time, are are now dead. Uh, Catherine Dunn, Robert Stone, Barry Hanna, Tom Jones. Uh, you know, the list just goes on and on. And I wanted to be able to thank them all. But talking about how much they meant to me and how much they helped me uh, was just really painful. So when you went back and edited it, did the pain subside because you had already gotten the generative work out? It did. There's kind of an old trope when you say, uh, write your stuff in a good mood, but edit it in a bad mood. And that was kind of an extreme version of what I was doing. I was writing it in a, uh, a kind of a painkiller good mood and then editing it in kind of a withdrawal bad mood. One of the pieces of advice that you offer in this book, which is really interesting, was you talk about what you call dangerous writing, which is kind of writing about your deep, dark secrets and your anxieties, writing to resolve some issues. And your more maybe mainstream writing teachers would say, you know, this isn't therapy on the page. You know, uh, dangerous writing was a kind of uh, philosophy or a platform of Tom Spanbauer's. And Tom was uh, my primary teacher. And Tom's idea was that when you're not getting paid and your work is not being read, and you're not getting any kind of external reward for writing, then you should be writing about personal issues, unresolved personal issues, but you should be writing about them in a metaphoric way uh, so that at least the writing itself helps you to explore and to exhaust your emotional reaction to these issues that cannot be otherwise resolved so that by the time you finish the work, it's also this this emotional attachment that will keep you coming back to the page and keep you working on the piece, even though you're not, you don't see it actually selling or you don't see any other outcome for it. At least you get the benefit of exploring the issue. And once you've resolved your attachment to the issue, the issue really magically disappears from your life. Uh, it's, it is just an incredible thing to watch in people's, in, their, in workshops. People really let go of these huge issues by writing about them within a, a kind of a completely blown up metaphor um, that hides what the real thing is, but allows the writer to explore it and eventually to kind of declare it complete. So you mentioned, Tom, when the book opens, you are first in a workshop with people that are very nice and they, they sort of say to you, you know what, I think it's time for you to move on because the stuff you're writing is maybe a little too risque or unpolitically correct for them. And so you found Tom. Right. They actually directed me to Tom. Tom had been one of the students in Gordon Lish's program at Columbia. And I understood that, that Gordon's courses had anywhere from 120 to 130 people in them. And that the Lish was very, you know, perfunctory about only listening to as much of a person's work um, as was necessary before he could, you know, find a teachable moment. He would stop them and he would point something out and then he would not allow them to continue. And so a lot of people felt very burned 
because they didn't they weren't allowed to read their entire piece in in Lish's workshop. Anyway, Tom completes his his uh, master's program with Lish. He publishes a, a short novel, and then he moves to Portland, Oregon, and I believe that was in 1990. And I was one of his first students at a time when he was teaching out of his kitchen. Uh, I was one of four students. Well, one of the things you told me last time we talked was that in a very early age, you were interested in becoming a priest because you really liked the idea of people telling you secrets. And you realized that you didn't want to keep those secrets, so you went into journalism. And you thought you could learn those secrets and share them. What was the transition for you from journalism to fiction? You know, I, I had always wanted to write fiction, but my parents, neither of whom went to college, were convinced that, that journalism would be uh, would offer more job prospects. And they didn't really know what journalism consisted of. But to them, it just seemed, you know, more lucrative than than writing fiction. And so I went into journalism. But coming out of a reporting background and reporting for a couple of years through college, it made it a lot easier to write uh, according to Tom's rules of minimalism, which included not using pejorative language. And writing in, in the School of Journalism we were kind of pushed towards being objective and not dictating things to the audience. So in minimalism, you're not allowed to dictate emotions. You're not allowed to dictate uh, opinions to the audience. So coming from journalism, that was second nature to me. And I didn't have to come over. I didn't have to overcome a tendency to, to push my opinion or to use uh, really opinionated language when I was writing fiction. Um, that made it easier for me to learn minimalism. That sort of reminds me of something you write about in, in your book, which is talking about big voice versus little voice, where one is maybe kind of micro and one is more macro. Can you talk about that a little bit? Hmm. That was a great, one of the really early distinctions that Tom taught was, uh, that little voice basically describes the scene. It's, it's kind of what Tom would call a recording angel, where you're you're being a camera that records what things look like, what they smell like, who moves, uh, what happens. But big voice is a kind of philosophizing voice that can rise above the scene and can kind of talk about big, big thematic events in a brief way, uh, in a brief way that that uh, doesn't go on too long because it doesn't involve the reader physically. And you always want to get back to a little boy's physical scene where the reader can be kind of physically swept into the story. And, and big voice is kind of everywhere. It's any point where a character begins to talk in a very um, expository way. Do you remember the movie Clute with Jane Fonda? Yeah. There are these these periods throughout the movie, really until the very end of the movie, where Jane Fonda is on an analyst's couch, and she's talking about herself and her behavior, 
and why she does things she does. And they're used as a kind of wonderful device for her to talk about herself as a character, but they are very brief. And, uh, and they're just kind of salted in to contrast and to act as voiceover uh, between uh, physical scenes. The same with Sex in the City. You know, anytime that Carrie Bradshaw sits down with her, her laptop and she's writing her column and we're hearing out loud what she's typing, that's big voice. Because she's talking about the theme of what is going to be otherwise depicted in the physical scenes by little voice. Even as I'm describing that, I'm standing here, I'm doing a kind of dance where my whole body is involved because uh, it really, really helps uh, uh, information retrieval, um, physical gesture. Uh, I'm reading more and more studies where, where linguists say that physical gesture isn't so much about uh, communicating what's being said as it is about retrieving it, that what you do with your hands and your feet has a lot to do with how you're pulling this information from your memory. One of the things that you write about in many different ways, whether you're talking about dialogue or or how you how you sort of balance out your scenes, does seem like you your advice is almost one of a, an orchestra conductor, where you're laying out all these ideas that people need to think about, like the gestures or the way they talk or the point of view and how, I mean, you liken it to a mixtape. And last time we talked, we talked a lot about punk punk music and how that influences you. And it seems like there's sort of a music balance thing going on in your head when you think about writing where you're kind of, you know, balancing all these different things at once. Balancing and also kind of judging the mood, trying to anticipate at what point will the reader be bored, and then changing the texture of the information or switching to a different perspective or switching to a different time just before we've reached the moment of annoyance or uh, or fatigue in the reader. So we're constantly switching things up so that the reader always stays freshly really closely engaged. You talk about this idea that seems very, it makes so much sense, and yet it seems so hard to actually execute, which is, you said, to allow the epiphany to occur in the reader's mind before it's stated on the page. So how do you share with your students how to start approximating that? Wow. You really want to create the circumstances, the physical circumstances, so that the reader has the epiphany, or at least has an inkling of the epiphany. Because then the reader, the reader will, number one, have an enormous emotional stake in seeing whether or not he or she is right or wrong. Uh, kind of like on a game show, when you're watching a game show, and you're shouting the answer that you're sure is the answer. So you have a stake there, and you're going to keep watching until you find out whether or not you're, you're right or wrong. But something that's maybe even sweeter is that what is the first thing that Scarlett O'Hara says in Gone with the Wind? 
I do not remember, but you wrote it in your book, and I don't remember either. No, I, I wrote the first line, which is Scarlett O'Hara was not beautiful, but men seldom realize that. But the first thing she says is, war, war, war. There is not going to be any war. So instantly, we as the reader, we're, we're smarter than Scarlett. And the great thing that happens is that despite Scarlett's wealth and her charm and her attractiveness, we are smarter than her. And so we care about her. We instantly feel superior to her. So we feel this kind of condescending, nurturing need to see things work out for her. We want to see her come to enlightenment because we know that there's going to be a war and we know how things are going to turn out. So in a way, O'Hara becomes our child and we adopt her as a character. And so when you can allow the reader to have the epiphany, you make the reader smarter than the main character. So suddenly it's not just the reader being invested in the story, but the reader is super emotionally invested in the outcome for the main character. Can you share an example of when you did this in one of your books and a little bit about the process of doing it? Like, did it come out unconsciously? Were you thinking about it? Or was it something that you wrote in your first draft and came back and tried to jigger it a little bit? You know, the, the example I always go back to, because it's uh, kind of universally available on the Internet, is the short story I read called Guts that makes so many people faint. And there is the epiphany in the second act where the character has run afoul of the water inlet port in the swimming pool. And his brain reaches the wrong conclusion. His brain seizes on the idea that a snake has got a hold of him. That somehow this, this magical snowy white snake, this blue-white snake, has come out of the, the drain of the pool and has attached itself to him. And he talks in such denial but in such visceral detail about this snake that even though he is completely deluding himself, the audience has to realize what's actually happening in the scene despite his misdirection, his misinterpretation. And so the audience is forced to bear the emotional reaction that he is not having. And the audience has to carry the horror because the horror is not occurring for him. And that is something I learned from Amy Hempel. Amy Hempel is a master at making her reader carrying, carry all the emotional weight of what is happening in a story. So by the end of the story, the main character is still more or less intact, but the reader is left devastated, and that's the goal. One of the things you, you also talk about you talk about story seeding and you have an incredible story in there about a horse and a vet, but it, can you talk about that idea? 
uh, I call it crowd seating because it, it makes it easier to remember. You think of cloud seating, and basically, it's how I learned to write. Was uh, I would take the germ of an idea. Uh, a lot of times, it would be an anecdote from my own life, and if I told it at a party, if it generated everyone else wanting to tell an almost identical but better version of the same anecdote from their own life, then I knew it was good stuff. It was a way of testing whether or not an idea would engage with people and people would engage with that and whether it was something that they would, that would reflect their own lives. It was kind of sort of field testing. And so it was a way of testing the attractiveness of an idea but it was also a way of developing the the idea itself because when people stepped forward and began to naturally compete in telling their version of the same story, oh, that happened to me too, blah, blah, blah. They would give you versions of the story that would develop the idea in ways that would never have occurred to you and would develop it to extremes that you would never have had the courage to go to. And so crowd seating allows you to test whether or not an idea is engaging, but also it gives you a laboratory or kind of a playground in which to hear people's better versions of the same idea. Boy, and in my case, I would talk about my first day at the Freightliner truck plant when my foreman sent me to get something something called a squeegee sharpener, and I would have to go to every workstation on the assembly line and ask the, the foreman for the squeegee sharpener. And the foreman would just curse me and berate me and spit on me and send me to another foreman who would do the same thing. And by the end of the day, I had met every foreman I would ever be assigned to work for. And I had learned the entire layout of the plant. And I had learned that there is no such thing as a squeegee sharpener, but on your first day, that is what everyone is sent to find. And in telling that, that hazing story, hundreds of people would tell me fantastically extreme versions of their hazing story. Uh, and it really culminated in this, uh, this French, French veterinarian telling me his, uh, which is so over the top and so incredibly outlandish that I'm going to not gobble up 20 minutes to tell it right here. But doctors have these, uh, journalists have these, pretty much every, uh, you know, every field of work has its little initiation hazing rituals. And some of them are unbelievably bizarre and cruel and, and funny. Yes, and there's many reasons to buy this book, but just to read that story would be one of them. He was the most unlikely person. I still remember just how proper he was and how beautifully dressed he was in Paris when he came up to me and he gave me his card and he told me that story. I could not imagine him in the circumstances uh, of being knocked out with drugs and stripped naked and what was done to him in his story. Uh, yeah, it was just amazing. You know, the world is so much more 
than we're ever allowed to really see on the surface. It is so no matter how many streaming things now come into my home, I never see anything on all these streaming services that comes anywhere close to the incredible stories that people tell me when I'm touring. Um, touring always makes the the rest of the world seem so banal and tame and and written by committee. It sounds like what you're saying with this crowd seating is you you have a sort of physicality and take it out to the world approach to writing that you don't you are not someone who maybe sits in in a cave and writes and writes and writes and just publishes it you you test ideas you you're out there talking in the world i mean you describe how you write where you mind map and you bring it out i am really lousy at being with people i still want to be with people but i have no idea how to interact and so at least in this way you know when i'm in this very structured situation where i tell a an outlandish story i'm giving them permission to come to me with their their outlandish story that they've never told anyone and i'm proving to them that i'm not going to judge them uh, i'm not going to kind of dismiss them when they tell their story so I get to finally be that priest sitting in the confessional who's hearing these amazing, amazing secret stories. But it sounds like you also, like when you're writing, you mind map and you take notes by hand and then you type it and then you carry it around and you ask people for feedback. So you you're, have a very interactive style, it seems, when you write. I love that you use the term mind map. Because I tell my students about, I, I say brain mapping, because I thought that's what we called it in the 80s, where you have a central idea, and then you start to brain map ideas around that idea. Uh, and I'm always pushing my students to do that from the beginning with an idea. Uh, and so I love that you know the term, but that's very much what I do. Are you by nature an introvert? I am. I am, and I think that's why journalism was attractive, because it gave me a kind of legitimacy and it gave me a role to play that allowed me to be in the world and to to talk about what otherwise might be personal or secret issues with people. Um, yeah, I am kind of commodifying the intimate, which I'm not very happy about but at least I'm aware that I'm commodifying the intimate. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but I understand what you're saying about maybe, I mean, these aren't your words, but like if you feel socially awkward, if you come to any kind of social situation with a format, in your case, maybe it's asking for hazing stories or asking for feedback or even maybe when you go to readings and you have gifts to hand out to people, it just, makes it a little bit less uncomfortable. Right. <laughs> because you have a little bit of a, a script uh, to fall back on. You know, and right from the beginning with Fight Club, Fight Club started as a series of seven or eight rules 
that were just going to be transitional devices in a short story? What if I jump around temporally by touching upon these rules every time I, I switch tense or I switch location, switch point of view? I just mention a rule. And so rules and structure uh, have always been a really important part of the stories and of my events you know, and my life. I'm kind of OCD in that way. So if, if people read this book, is there one thing in particular you want them to walk away with? A lot of times with, with crowd seeding, you don't necessarily even have to be the one that seeds the crowd. You can just be in the crowd listening for other people's conversational starters and watch them testing the waters because everyone is doing the same thing. They're all trying to offer a topic that will engage everyone else the way that, you know, when you take your dog to the dog park, your dog runs around hoping all the other dogs will chase it. Everybody chase me. And then if they don't, they chase the dog that everyone else is chasing. But everyone, everyone wants to be the dog that gets chased, at least for a little bit. So you go to a party and then you see people, you know, sort of introducing these topics hoping to get engagement and then someone does get engagement and everyone is chasing that dog and so you don't have to be the dog getting chased you just have to be the dog listening for how the other dogs get chased Um, that's one thing and a bigger kind of version of that is when we're really little kids in my generation in the 70s we were given this whole lecture about how we were all unique snowflakes. We were all so different from each other. And we were entirely validated by the fact that we were so completely different and unique and snowflake-like. And so that's what I was kind of battling against in Fight Club, was this, this idea that we are so different when in fact our strength lies in recognizing how much more alike we are and giving up this kind of snowflake uniqueness about ourselves or recognizing that that our lives are so similar, uh, that's where you start to have freedom as as a creative person. When you start to recognize, you know, how the unresolved parts of your life will serve the unresolved parts of other people's lives. And if you can go there and you can explore those things, you can be doing that for a lot of people who are reading your work. But first you have to give up the idea that you are completely unique and you are your own special snowflake. And so that's really what I meant with the whole snowflake distinction. It had nothing to do with fragility. It was all about giving up this idea that uh, we're all so different that uh, that we can't relate to each other. What do you tell your students or what would you tell a student who came to you and said, well, what about the role of Vicodin or Oxycontin or, or alcohol in writing? Boy, I would say the stories that I told under the influence for Consider This were stories that I carried in my head for 
20 to 30 years. And so they were very well-practiced stories. Um, and they're stories I wanted to be rid of. So the greater danger is if you try to write under the influence of something, uh, you lose the ability to to judge whether or not that the thing is a good story. And so you don't want to be able you don't want to lose that discretion. Uh, so that's why you shouldn't write high. Uh, it, it, it's kind of like when you things that are funny when you're stoned are not really funny. They're funny because you're stoned. Um, yeah. So that would be my, my caveat. Can you read something from another writer that influenced you? Yeah. It's something that I am always going back to, and I'm always trying to find a way to recreate this passage, which is from Nathaniel West's Day of the Locusts. You know, I just recently found out that I didn't know when Nathaniel West had died. And I found out that when Scott Fitzgerald had his heart attack and died, Nathaniel West was in San Diego. And he found out the day of the funeral that his very good friend Fitzgerald had died. Actually, you know, uh, the day of the locusts and, uh, and The Last Tycoon are such similar novels. You can see, you know, that maybe they worked on them together. But Nathaniel West was so desperate to get to Fitzgerald's funeral that he drove like a bat out of hell. And he got into a car accident, and he actually died on the day of uh, Scott Fitzgerald's funeral. I find that really, really moving, you know, in a depressing way. But the opening scene in The Last Tycoon takes place when there's an earthquake and it destroys a, uh, a water uh, tank. And the water tank unleashes this huge flood that carries all of the debris of a Hollywood backlot in the 1920s, carries it along in this huge parade past the point of view character. So the point of view character is watching all of these landmarks and all of these bits of history floating by in this incredible pageant. Uh, this surreal juxtaposition of the most amazing things. And that scene is almost identical to this scene that Nathaniel uh, West wrote in The Day of the Locust. This is the character Todd, who is walking through a Hollywood back lot, again, in the 1920s. From the steps of the temple, he could see in the distance a road lined with Lombardy poplars. It was the one on which he had lost the cuissars. He pushed his way through a tangle of briars, old flats and iron junk, skirting the skeleton of a zeppelin, a bamboo stockade, an adobe fort, the wooden horse of Troy, a flight of Baroque palace stairs that started in a bed of weeds and ended against the branches of an oak tree, part of the 14th Street elevated station, a Dutch windmill, the bones of a dinosaur, the upper half of the Merrimack, a corner of a Mayan temple, until finally he reached the road. He was out of breath. He sat down under one of the poplars on a rock made of brown plaster and took off his jacket. There was a cool breeze blowing, and he soon felt more comfortable. 
he had then lately begun to think not only of Goya and Damier, but also of certain Italian artists of the 17th and 18th centuries, of Salvatore Rosa and Francesco Gardi and Monsu Desidero, the painters of decay and mystery. Looking down Hill now, he could see compositions that might have actually been arranged by a Calabrian work of Rosa. There were partially demolished buildings and broken monuments, half hidden by great, tortured trees whose exposed roots writhed dramatically in the arid ground, and by shrubs that carried not flowers or berries, but armories of spikes, hooks, and swords. Do you want to say a little okay. more about why you chose that? I, I read that in sixth grade. I read that when I was 11 years old. And the ability to put together all these seemingly disparate things was such a fantastic demonstration of the postmodern. And I didn't recognize it as postmodern when I was 11. But for the first time, I saw a way of kind of creating sense out of what appeared to be chaos, even though, you know, it was chaotic. And I just loved the way uh, that Nathaniel West could walk us through the impossible and make it entirely plausible and acceptable, uh, this fantastic dream world. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it changed a lot from the first draft or was tricky or hard to write. The story I would like to read is uh, the one called Eleanor. Uh, It's uh, a story about a guy with a pit bull who moves to California from Oregon. But the entire story is told with the wrong words. And uh, it's almost impossible to read out loud. But when I wrote it, it left me feeling like I'd had a stroke because by deliberately using the wrong words over and over, and words that sounded like the right words, but with the wrong words, left my mind just uh, uh, so mixed up. Uh, it was difficult to talk out loud for days. Interesting. Yeah, and I don't have a copy of it here. Where do you write? I write, write in uh, uh, freehand in a notebook all the time. Um, and I more or less take the notebook with me everywhere I go. Uh, because you don't know when you're going to get that idea or you're going to overhear just a perfect phrase or you're going to see an image that is exactly what you're looking for. And so I need to be able to write those down in the moments that they occur. But I actually keyboard and put the whole thing together. Uh, My favorite place is the first row window seat of an airplane, the bulkhead, where nobody's going to lean down on top of me, and I can open my tray table, and it's completely uh, static and boring, and there's nothing else to do but transcribe all of my messy notes and and, uh, and put them into a laptop computer. Have you ever taken a flight just to do that? No, I haven't, but I have kind of. I've taken trips that I wouldn't necessarily take, but I knew that they would require a lot of uh, downtime in airports and on airplanes. And at the time, I had uh, notebooks that needed to be transcribed. 
so I, I would take the trip because I, I knew I would get a lot of uh, writing work done. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Boy, that that's not really a thing. Yeah, there is a... I never go anywhere to get away from writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? You know, when I'm crowd seating, when I'm testing it, I'm doing it everywhere. But beyond that, uh, I would read it in workshop. And until until recently, I was in a workshop with my peers, who were also former students of Tom's. And we had been meeting since uh, the early 90s. And that would, until recently, that would be the place where I would present it for the first time. Now it goes to my agent first. How have you dealt with rejection? Huh. Uh, I get really angry. Um, I get really pissed off. And uh, and I make the work more extreme. Uh, and then ultimately I realized that the, the rejection was uh, justified. The rejection was actually a very good thing. And what is your favorite word? You know, that's a tough one. Boy, um, my favorite word... I'm always going to fall back on uh, tin tabulation uh, from the Edgar Allan Poe uh, poem, The Bells. Tin tabulation that so musically swells from the bells, 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 bells. That word, tin tabulation. Thank you so much for your time. I am so appreciative and have a great night. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I hope I haven't talked your ear off. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Chuck Polinick, author of Consider This, Moments in My Writing Life, After Which Everything Was Different. If you liked today's show, check out my earlier interview with Polinick about his novel, Adjustment Day. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 260 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Some clips from this month's interview that patrons will receive as extras include an additional 10 minutes with Chuck Polinick. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Anne Enright, Sahara Mustafa, and Deb Olin Unferth. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft, a dialogue on writing, a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.